If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You know, I was thinking it's, uh, it's tempting uh, after singing a song like that to just say amen and leave. Such a sweet song. And then I was reminded that we need to hear from God. It is worth our time to give Him our voice, but what we really need in life and death is to hear His voice. And so we move on to Matthew chapter 5. This is God's Word, starting with verse 21. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, we've printed the text for you. You can also find it in a pew Bible on page 810. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of those pew Bibles home with you. I would rather it be in your house being read than in our pew sitting here during the week. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 21. This is God's Word. You have heard it said... To those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word? Let's pray. Father, show us wonderful things in your law that we might not only be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Show us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have the power we need to obey what you command. We pray that you would do these things to the end of the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're looking for a nice, safe Jesus, um, I would encourage you to skip the next couple months. If you're looking, but, you know, if you're looking for someone who's going to call you to do the most difficult things that you have ever done and then give you the power to do those things, then stick around and get ready. Jesus is going to start digging around and calling us to deal with some of the most core areas of our life. In this passage, he is dealing with the problem of anger. Now imagine a world where anger was eradicated. I mean, everyone wants to eradicate hunger and poverty, but Jesus wants to eradicate anger. I mean, it's such a deep move. I mean, you imagine if people are reconciled with each other, those who who have plenty will give to those who have want more freely. Wars rage because of jealousy and pride and the anger that results. Eradicate anger and you've got a really different world. I'm convinced of this. Most marriages that end in divorce 
at some point bore the fruit of bitterness and allowed it to grow. It's the number one problem in most of our marriages. And Jesus says, God is opposed to anger. An angry Christian is an oxymoron. And I need to confess to you that I am an angry man. And I, I realized this week, as Jesus has just dug around in my heart, that I keep anger like it's a, a little pet. I nurture it. I prize it. I feed it in my heart. Because anger makes me feel like I'm important. Anger makes me feel like I'm in control. Anger makes me feel superior. But here's what the Bible says about anger. Anger actually reveals. Our anger reveals what we value the most. It reveals the deepest objects of our affections. See, when you get angry, you can always trace that anger backwards in a path and ask the question, what am I really angry about? If you're willing to do the hard work and go from the fact that so-and-so did this and that, if you're willing to... Ang- well, what is that revealing about who I am and what I want? At some level, you will realize I am angry because I am not getting my own way. I am not getting what I want. I am not being treated with dignity. My agenda is not being promoted. See, at the root of anger, the Bible says, is a sense. I'm not getting what I deserve. Right? So, caveat, anger isn't necessarily sinful. Jesus is not dealing with anger, per se. He's dealing with sinful anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus got angry when people were turning the temple into a marketplace to make a buck off of the worshipers. He got angry angry at the Pharisees and called them a brood of vipers. When he stood at at Lazarus' grave, John says he was like an angry stallion snorting at death. And in those moments, though, back to the root of anger, a sense that I'm not getting what I deserve, it reveals Jesus reveals in those moments that his father's glory and his father's mission to redeem the broken is his greatest concern. The Pharisees are sidetracking that, telling people, just be good, and then when you're good enough, God will approve. Jesus is angry at that. That's not what I've come to do. That's not the mission that I'm on. Martin Luther says this about righteous anger. I think it's really helpful. It is an anger of love. One that wishes no evil on anyone. One that is friendly to the person but hostile to the sin. That's so hard to differentiate in our lives. So hard to actually love the person that I might have found myself righteously anger at. But Jesus isn't after that kind of anger in this passage. He's going after the sinful anger, the kind of anger that reveals our idols. So I want to talk about two things today a short primer on on anger. I want to talk about two things today. I want to talk first about how the gospel heals our relationships by freeing us from anger. And then I want to talk about how we can practice reconciliation in our relationships. See, Jesus isn't just after the absence of anger in this passage, but the presence of love 
reconciled in our relationships. So first, let's acknowledge the hidden assumption here. Where we are going to wrong each other. Right? Jesus is talking about anger because he realizes this is such a core issue in our lives because we step on each other's toes. We sin against each other. Jesus doesn't assume that the church is immune to relational conflict. In fact, he assumes that it's going to happen, nor does he assume that relational harmony is going to come easy. Like, just all of a sudden, the gospel shows up, you become a Christian, and all of a sudden, you have great relationships with it. That's not his assumption. He's calling us to act, to obey his commands, to work on this, because the kind of love, reconciled relationships that he's after requires hard work. In fact, one of the things that Jesus is doing is raising the bar on what God requires. He's exposing our anger. Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, and he quotes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and the punishment um, tied to it in the Old Testament law, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But now it's easy in that case to look on my well, I've not really taken anyone's life, but he raises the bar. It's not what I'm after. The root that gives rise to murder is in our hearts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He takes the law and he trills it deep. He's like a doctor. He does an MRI, right, to show you the hidden cancer that's causing all of your symptoms. So you're going to have to work on your anger. We are going to have to work on our anger. He's destroying, though, in this statement, the ability for us to take care of this cancer by ourselves. He's driving us out of ourselves to the gospel as the only means by which our anger problem will be unrooted in our lives. The doctor doesn't show you the MRI, here's the cancer, and then say, you need to take care of this yourself. He does that, exposes it, so that he could excise it from our bodies. And notice that he isn't just saying that we are guilty of murder. He's setting the goal as reconciliation, verses 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go first. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation, the goal, is the embracing of the one wronged with the goal of seeing them thrive at my expense. He's not saying, you've got to get rid of your anger. He's saying, no, you've got to embrace the one who's wronged you so that they would thrive at your expense. It's the plus of forgiveness. Forgiveness always leads to the work of reconciliation. It's not enough in God's kingdom just to say, look, I've forgiven them in my heart. Forgiveness is never private. It always works its way into the life of the person who wronged me. Forgiveness goes out and embraces. Now, I need, a, I need another caveat here. It's really important. I want you to hear this. If forgiveness means reconciliation, right, that's the goal, it doesn't necessarily mean that forgiving reconciliation eliminates all the effects of the forgiven sin. For instance, 
If your father sexually abused you, forgiveness and reconciliation are necessary, but it doesn't mean that you need to be alone with him or leave your children alone with him. It doesn't automatically lead to deep levels of trust, but it opens the door. It opens the door for that maybe as a possibility. Reconciliation is a commitment that even though you've wronged me, I will not be angry at you anymore. I mean, it's a reconciliation is a willingness to put it off to the side. Reconciliation is a commitment that I will bear the cost of making sure this relationship thrives. And we're going to see how in a second that's what the gospel commands us to, compels us to. But Ken Sandy in his Peacemakers book, because there's four commitments to reconciliation, to forgiveness that leads to reconciliation. And these are four commitments that the offended party bears. Right? This is what gospel forgiveness looks like. I will bear the cost. So the offended party commits to four things. One, I will not dwell on this incident anymore. It's a willingness to put it behind my back. I'm not going to, I will not bring up, that's an internal one. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to keep rehashing it in my mind. Forgiveness means I will not think about it. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. It's no longer in my arsenal of things used to manipulate you. I will not talk about this incident with others. I will protect you. I will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our personal relationships. And again, these commitments really rooted in the gospel. We see what the gospel does is it comes in and it frees us from our anger and enables us to move towards reconciliation by introducing another person into the equation, right? And so if it's me and you and you've wronged me or I've wronged you and you're having difficulty putting away the offense, forgiving it, bearing the cost, working towards the relationship, the gospel comes in and says actually there's another person in this relationship, it's not just you and the offended party. Jesus is present here. And the gospel allows me to interact with the way Jesus has treated me instead of responding to how you have treated me. So in the gospel, God says, look, I've taken the burden of your reconciliation onto myself. You have wronged me with your sin. And the debt of that wrong is death. You have provoked my righteous anger that we heard read from Nahum. Your sin, our sin, provokes God. And he says the sinner must die. And so this is what God does. The offended party. I will absorb that cost. I made my son who knew no sin to be sin. He died the death for your offenses against me. Now, in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not going to use that against you. God's not going to bring that up later in life and say, don't you remember when? Let's put it behind his back. And because of the cross, we're reconciled to God at peace with him. And so the gospel, in the gospel, I can say to the person who's wronged me, I've done worse. I am worse. I deserve worse. But God has borne that cost. And that just begins to dissipate my anger because I now have something to do with it. 
I now can bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ and God will absorb it with his grace. I can look at the Jesus forgiving love instead of your offense against me. I don't have to look at the wrong you've done to me. Now I can look at all the good God has done for me though I deserve so much worse. The gospel also comes in, it says more. Right? That, would be, that would be an amazing thing just to get rid of my anger if I were to work myself into that. But the gospel actually comes in and says so much more. It says to us, you have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, so you are a beloved child of God. He delights over you. And so if, if anger wants to say, these are conversations that we're having in our hearts, if anger wants to say, you're better than this, you deserve better than to be treated this way, so be offended. The gospel says, look, I am now the best in Christ at the expense of another. The gospel says, I am important even though I deserve worse. I am a hell-deserving son of God. The Father's righteous indignation has been placed in my life with his reconciling delight. You see, we pray a very disturbing prayer every Sunday, don't we? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm afraid that too easily rolls off of our lips. Do we really, are we really willing to ask God to forgive in the same way we have been forgiving? So how do we practice being people who are replacing anger with reconciling love? Well, few things, four things actually. How do we practice this? First, we need to see people as immensely valuable and therefore worthy of the hard work of reconciling love. I mean, because Jesus starts out with a reference of the Sixth Commandment, the prohibition against murder. And he's making a masterful move here. He's reconciled relationships are about treating people with dignity because they are made in the image of God. Right? He's not talking about treating your pets well or taking care of the environment. Those are important things that a Christian should care about. But the people in our lives should get the best of our attention and require harder work from us because they bear God's image. They are of immense value. We've got to bring in this masterful observation from C.S. Lewis here about the value of the people in front of us. You'll remember Lewis often quoted... Lewis says it this way, it may be possible to think too much of our own potential glory in the world to come and the hereafter, but it is hardly possible for someone to think too often or too deeply of our neighbor's glory. The load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken by it. It is a serious thing in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. 
is worthy of reconciling love, of forgiving your neighbor because they bear the image of God and have immense glory. Second, and I've hinted at this, but it needs to be said, we need to repent of our anger. We have to start here, don't we? I mean, you can't hold on to your anger anymore like it's a prized pet. You have to put it down and call it what it is, an ugly offense against God. The children of the 80s will remember what happened to those cute little furry creatures called gremlins when they got wet. You got to see who they really were. Oh, if we would see our anger as a beast that would devour us and those around us. You see, following Jesus is always costly. You can't go on living the old ways. Jesus came to bring life. He came to bring it abundantly, but he came to bring it in new ways. Those who belong to him are new people living in an old broken world. He's going to require you to lay down your anger and walk away from it. And if you're going to walk away from it, you need to see, and this is what he does, you need to see what it really deserves. The hell of fire. The judgment of God. Third, reconciling love. That's our goal. Third, assume the best. Fourth will be promote the best. But first, assume the best. Sometimes the easiest way out of anger is not to get angry in the first place. It's not to nurture it in your heart. Often the way we get to anger is assuming the worst possible motives about what someone did to me. And it just boils within my heart when I do that. Paul tells us that love hopes all things, and he's telling us to assume the best motives of another person. How many times have you found yourself angry? Your child didn't respond to them when you called out to them. If you assume it's because they're purposely ignoring you, just disobeying you, it's just going to boil inside. But if, if you assume... They probably just didn't hear me because I wasn't clear and loud enough. Then you can start to move towards them and giving a second chance. Assume the best. Fourth, promote the best. Trade insult with blessing. Jesus subtly brings this tongue into this discussion and ties it to the heart. The angry person talks. And the angry person talks when he speaks. Anger comes out with the intent of damaging another's reputation. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Angry talks. Some of your translations might read raka instead of insults his brother. It's hard to translate. Jesus had in mind something culturally common. His readers, his hearers would have understood something along the lines of saying, you're just an idiot. You're a blockhead for you older saints. Calling someone a fool is, a, is calling someone's motives into question. They have, right, they have a bad mind. They have a bad heart. And instead he's saying, look, we've got to guard the reputation of those who've wronged us by promoting them in the best way possible to those around us. This is not what God does in his heavenly courts for us. When Satan comes and accuses of all the wrong that he says, he's like, quiet your mouth. That's not true of them anymore. That's my child you're speaking of. I've clothed them with my son's robes. Let me tell you about how awesome and great they are. 
and delight over them, sing songs about them. Fifth, keep short accounts. Reconciliation is an urgent work. It's an urgent work. In two ways, Jesus is pressing the urgency of reconciliation here. First, worship. God is not interested in your worship if you are not reconciled to your brother. If you realize you've wronged someone, take care of it now. Now, leave. Go take care of it, Jesus says. Then come back and offer your worship. This has to be taken care of now, not later. And the second way he's pressing the urgency, the courtroom. In the ancient Near East, if you couldn't pay a debt, you'd go to court. That person would accuse you. You'd have to be put in prison until you could pay that debt off. Don't wait for that day. Be reconciled quickly, Jesus says. Don't wait. This is urgent. Before you get to the judge and he executes his judgment. Take care of this now. And in two ways, he's saying, look, we've got to deal with others before we deal with God. God's not interested in fake worship from his people. True worship of God is seen in his people who, empowered by the gospel, keep short accounts and are working hard on reconciliation. Reconciling love. Let me share with you finally a story I've shared with you before, but I feel like it really makes this come to life. I could think of no better illustration. Chris Carrier was a little boy living in South Florida when he was abducted by David McAllister on his way home from school. See, David McAllister had been fired by Chris's grandfather and had lost a lot of money and potential income in the process. And so he abducted Chris. Told him, I need to throw you help, you need your help throwing a party for your family. So David McAllister took Chris, this tender little elementary age boy, he took him out into the Florida Everglades and he pulled out an ice pick, stabbed him multiple times, then shot him in the head, threw him out of the truck into the swamp, and left him to die. Miraculously, Chris survived six days in the swamp. Not really sure how. Someone found him on the side of the road, a trucker driving by, a farmer driving by, found him, took him to the hospital. He recovered fully, physically. Emotionally, he was done. He would wake up at night screaming. His life had been ruined by an angry man. But God did an amazing thing. He gave him new life in Christ. Chris became a new man. The old was gone, the new has come. And years later, Chris, after having come to Christ, forgave David McAllister almost shortly thereafter. Actually, students, you should be encouraged by this. He was sitting in his youth group when he realized the providence and kindness of God towards him and immediately his heart moved to forgive the man who tried to kill him. So later in his life, Chris, now an adult, finds out that David McAllister, the angry man that tried to kill him, is on his deathbed and they live in the same town. And so Chris went and visited the man who tried to kill him. And David said, he was sorry, and Chris said, I forgave you. And then he said, from now on, there will be nothing like anger or revenge between us, only friendship. And then Chris would go almost daily to his bedside to read the Bible to David. David came to faith in Christ himself. And Chris realized during this process that David didn't have any family whatsoever. And so Chris would bring his two little girls 
and in his own words, giving him some semblance of a family in the days before his death. He told reporters from CNN that Chris, David said this, Chris is the best friend I ever had. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do in our relationships. It can do that. It's what Jesus can do in our relationships. You have that same kind of power in Jesus Christ. Because you see, that is a very small picture of what God has done for us. From rebels to beloved children. Now go. Put away your anger and be reconciled to each other. Let's pray. Father, if If you could reconcile us to yourself through the blood of your Son and make us who were once rebels beloved children, then certainly you can do this kind of work in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationship to each other. Let not the root of bitterness anymore find the soil of our hearts. Instead, Grow in us the fruit of your spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, Jesus has no law. Oh, display the power of the gospel in our community. That the name of Jesus might be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Breathe, oh, breathe thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away the love of sinning. And avoid that it's beginning Set our hearts at liberty Come Almighty to deliver Let us all thy life receive Suddenly return at death Never more my temples leave Thee we would be always blessing Serving as thy host above Pray and praise thee without ceasing Then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored to thee. 
changed from glory into 